Grace, our scripture this morning is John 4, starting in verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Good morning. We're only four chapters, just finishing the fourth chapter uh, of John's Gospel. And interestingly, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but but we've already seen Jesus travel close to 200 miles walking. He's not picking up frequent flyer miles here. The first time we're introduced to Jesus in the narrative portion of John's Gospel is when he was introduced by John the Baptist in a town called Bethany, which is near Jerusalem in the far south. From there, Jesus traveled all the way up north to Galilee. And within Galilee, he went to Cana, which our passage makes mention of, where he turned water to wine, and then to Capernaum to stay uh, with his family and with his disciples. Then, because it was the time of the Passover, he went all the way back down uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate. That's where he cleansed the temple temple and met the man Nicodemus. While still in Judea, he took the, what Pastor Mike called the ministry handoff from John the Baptist and then headed back all the way up to the north. On the way, he stopped in Samaria to minister to the woman at the well and to the many other people from her town. Well, after two days in Sychar, Samaria, he departed for Galilee, again, all the way up north. That's a lot of walking, and that's where we pick up this week. Throughout Jesus' 200-ish miles of trekking, he'd already garnered quite a reputation for himself, for his ministry. Picking up on that, our, our passage describes Jesus' reception when he returned back to the town where he did his first miracle in Capernaum, The site of what we'll see today is his second, the healing of the official's sick son. More significantly still, we'll see that through this second miracle, Jesus healed the souls of the official and his entire family. He healed the body of the boy and the souls of their whole family. The three main things for us to see are, one, Jesus' growing reputation. We need to get our minds around that a bit. Second, Jesus' absolute authority in the varying stages of the official's belief in it. And third, that salvation is ultimately the result of Jesus entrusting himself to us. And so 
If there's one thing I hope God uses this sermon to do, it's that every one of us in this room would take one step or or several steps, but at least one step forward in grasping the infinite glory of Jesus. And as a result, that we would trust in him, maybe even one more step to live fully in light of it, of his infinite glory, which we get an awesome glimpse of in this passage. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would make that so. God, you are glorious beyond measure. There is no end to your glory in magnitude or time. It has been forever and will be forever, and it extends beyond the farthest reaches of creation. It is a remarkable thing that you made us to delight in the most delightful thing, in the one thing whose delightfulness or which in whose delightfulness we can never exhaust our joy. I, I, I've trembled at Jonathan Edwards' words of sinners in the hands of an angry God, where when you're in hell and you think at every moment it can't get any worse, it does forever. But God, we marvel at the fact that the opposite is true as well. That when we are in heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we think at any moment it cannot get better than this, there's no possible way my joy could be more complete than this. It will forever and ever and ever. God, thank you that we get a glimpse of your infinite glory in this passage, but we also thank you for giving us a glimpse of the fickleness and sinfulness and deceitfulness of our hearts. We wander away from that to the puny pleasures of this world. Flare up so quickly and fizzle out even quicker still, but we chase them one after another. Thank you that you help us to see that this morning and also that you help us to see the power of Christ to speak a word and heal, to draw us to faith, to cause us to trust in him that we might be saved, that we might be healed spiritually. Thank you that it is all your grace. Help us to see your glory this morning. Help us to see our sin. Help cause cause us to place our hope in you or place our hope further in you, the one who rules all things. You deserve that, and we need that. It's what we were made for. Tune our hearts to see and sing your praise, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in a day that, as you know, obviously, long predated Twitter or any type of mass media, being well-known in an area took more than simply fitting sub 75 marshmallows in your mouth, which I saw on YouTube at once, or being good at videoing yourself playing video games. There were a number of ways to do it, to get a reputation at that time, like sig significant criminal activity. Advise against that one. A high position in government or being an exceptional teacher, for instance, if you were good enough at any of those things, your, your name could be known through a wider audience. But it took something a bit more noteworthy then than it seems to today. Well, even without the benefit of YouTube or Fox News, Jesus was developing a reputation for himself that was spreading from north to south. 
among the contributing factors. Just think of some of what we've already seen in John's gospel. He'd been assigned a spokesman from God whose singular charge was to prepare the way for him. He'd acquired a growing number of followers. He'd performed a miracle in a very public place. During one of the biggest Jewish celebrations of the year, Jesus publicly rebuked men, approved by the religious leaders, costing them large sums of money. He cleared out the temple, performed signs, and made bold claims about his father and himself. He confounded one of the leaders of the religious leaders. He broke from age-old customs and broke down centuries-old barriers in preaching and teaching among the Samaritans. And above all, he claimed to be the long-awaited Christ. That's one way to do it. That'll get your name known. We see evidences of his growing renown indirectly in verse 44. If you look at the text, it's up on the screen or in your Bibles where Jesus, or where John recalls Jesus teaching on the relationship between a prophet and his hometown. His point was that Jesus' reputation had grown. He's contrasting it with what he had just experienced in Samaria. He was trying to help us to see that Jesus' reputation had grown for good reasons among those whom it shouldn't have, the Samaritans, and for bad reasons among those whom it should have, the children of Abraham. We see explicit evidence of Jesus' growing reputation in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. They had gone down for the feast as well and saw what Jesus did. And more explicit evidence of Jesus' growing reputation in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. People knew that. Again, Jesus' reputation among the Samaritans was tied to their belief in him as the Christ, the right kind of growing reputation. But it was growing among his own people, the children of Abraham, mainly as a troublemaker and a sign worker, the wrong kind, the circus performing kind. Of reputation. Grace, I need you to get this. It's important for us to recognize that what that much of what people thought of Jesus, the way they interpreted what they saw and heard, the reputation that they developed in their own mind and spread to others, much of that flowed directly from their view of his nature. What do I mean by that? We've seen and will continue to see in the gospel that some people believed the things Jesus said and did were from demons or from the devil. And so they interpreted those things in light of that. Some believed they were because he was a prophet. And they interpreted the things he said and did in light of that. Others because he was a heretic or a blasphemer. And others still because he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. Consequently, Jesus had many different reputations among many different people for many different reasons. And this we see an important principle. We can't always control what others think about us, what they choose to focus on in us, or how they interpret the things that they see and hear from us. Most people knew of Jesus, most people who knew of Jesus by his reputation probably didn't understand it, but here's what you and I need to get. I hope you already have a sense of this. But Jesus was actually known for only one thing. If, if you interviewed people and asked them to tell you about Jesus, they'd give you all kinds of stories and, and all kinds of conclusions based on those stories. But there was a singular thing that actually was at the heart of everything people believed about Jesus. 
That is, he had a singular motivation for everything he did. All of the things that Jesus said and did, all of the things that led to Jesus' varying reputations flowed out of the same singular place. Do you know what it is? He tells us over and over. Again, mistakenly, many mistakenly explained it differently, just as many do today. Lots of people have lots of thoughts about who Jesus is and what his words in the Bible mean. We're not a whole lot different. But the reality is that Jesus' reputation was entirely owing to his perfect and unwavering commitment to doing the will of his Father for the pleasure of his Father. That's it. That is, Grace Church, the healing that people loved when they when he healed and they saw it and loved it, along with the teaching that so many hated and tore their garments over, came from him doing the will of the Father. The love that he had for the lowest of the low and his inability to be impressed by the highest of the high also came out of the same relentless commitment. The claims he made about himself that inspired many but caused the Pharisees to pour ashes on their heads came from the same place. Jesus' reputation should have come entirely from everyone who saw him, from their wonder at his perfect submission to the Father, but instead it often came from the preconceived framework of those who encountered them, for those who encountered his works and his words. Before we move on to the next main point of the passage, let's settle on two practical things. First, you and I need to make sure that we are not doing to Jesus what many in his day did. That is, we need to make sure that we know what Jesus actually said and did and why he said and did those things. That is, let's make sure we're not projecting our own sensibilities onto Jesus, but are allowing him to completely reshape ours. Let's make sure that our understanding of Jesus is tied to who he really is and not what we falsely imagined him to be. I I could not begin to list the number of things I grew up believing about Jesus that had nothing to do with Jesus. You've probably heard me say some version of this before, But the bottom line is so many of us create something in our head that has nothing to do with Jesus, and we just slap his name on that. It's not him. But we we convince ourselves somehow, or maybe someone else convinces us that it is. And so we do all kinds of weird things based on a figment of our imagination. And to help explain the, the second practical admonition I have for you in light of this, I want to ask you a a question. And I want you to try to consider this. I'm only going to give you like half a second, but do your best in that half a second. What are you known for? What are you, what are you known for? What is your reputation? Not everyone is well known. Certainly none of us are as well known as Jesus was. But everyone has a reputation. We're all known by others for or as something at work. Think, think about at work. What do your coworkers know you as or know you for? How about your family or extracurricular activities or the teams you're on at, at school or at church or wherever you gather regularly with others? You are known for something in particular. What is that? Try to, and probably like Jesus, it's a bunch of different things. Maybe it's that you're kind or smart or athletic or rich or prideful or temperamental or selfish or good-looking or whatever, but you're known for something. We all are, 
Regardless of what it is, we all have a reputation with the people who know us. It may result from a careful, accurate assessment of who you really are, or it may be a complete misinterpretation. Again, we can't necessarily control how people think about us, and we're not ultimately responsible for that. But we can control what drives us, what it is that they're seeing, that they're forming an opinion based on. This passage, along with all of Jesus' life, is a charge for you and for me to join him in doing all that we do out of obedience to the will of the Father for the pleasure of the Father. People will interpret that in all kinds of ways, but that doesn't change the rightness of following Jesus wherever he leads and whatever it costs. Let people say what they want about you, as long as it's in response to your genuine love for God and glad-hearted obedience to his commandments. So word was spreading that there was something special about Jesus of Nazareth. He was no ordinary teacher, and he could do things that others couldn't. Jesus' time had not yet come, so he had not yet fully revealed himself. As as awesome as what we've already seen has been, and even what we'll see in this passage, he had not yet fully revealed himself, his power or his mission. But even a partial revelation of those things was more than anyone could imagine. People were spinning their wheels trying to come up with the categories. Where do we put this guy? Where do we put the things that he says and does? that They don't fit into our understanding of things. And it is largely for that reason, his, his growing reputation, the fact that people didn't know what to do with him, it's largely for that reason that the official mentioned in verse 46 even came up with the idea to go to him. And that leads to the second main thing I want you to see from the text. The absolute authority of Jesus put on display in 46 to 53, along with the varying stages of the official's belief in it. There's something really awesome in this. This, uh, If you were in Berea this morning, you heard John tell us a a version of this. I wrote this before I knew what he was going to share, but it dovetails remarkably well. If you've ever had a child who's suffered from some type of significant illness, you know that it can be one of the most scary things you'll ever go through. You'll know how desperate you can feel. If your child's life is ever hung in the balance, you know that you do almost anything to help get them better. Jerry and I went through that with two of our five kids, and likewise, uh, <laughs> When I was a very young boy and my parents found out that I was going to lose my thumb, I still remember, at least them telling me about this, that my dad offered to donate his. As weird as that sounds to imagine a four-year-old with a man thumb, <laughs> it's a pretty sweet gesture, isn't it? And I know, I know we meant it. I know many of you have had similar experiences and some even more serious still. One of the hardest things in the world to go through is the suffering of your children. Well, the bulk of our text, the the words of our text anyway, they center around a grieving father longing for his sick son to be healed. And because of Jesus' growing reputation, you get the sense the guy didn't even really know what to make of him. He, He just knew something different. There was something different about Jesus. But he 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 knew, or at least he thought he knew, to go to Jesus. Look at verse 46. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Most likely, it was an official, a high official under King Herod. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he, his son, was at the point of death. The request raises a few questions for us, doesn't it? A couple for Jesus and at least one significant one for the man. First, again, you got to sort of forget you already know what you know about Jesus and put yourself in the place of the people at this time or the readers of John's gospel. They're still trying to figure all this out. But put yourself in their shoes. It was a test of the limits of Jesus' power and authority. He'd done some pretty remarkable things already, but was he able even to heal the dying? Turning water to wine is one thing. Teaching with authority and knowing people's hearts, it's another. But was he able even to heal the sick? Again, of course, you and I already know the answer to that, but they didn't. They're still wondering, who who is this man before us? We know he's not normal, but what is this? And so it asks, we're forced, where are the limits of this man's power? And second, it puts some aspect of Jesus' heart to the test as well, doesn't it? Would he ignore this father's desperate plea for the life of his son? Even if he had the ability to heal him, would he, would he use it? What kind of savior of the world was he? And on the, the side of the official, and what we're going to spend a few minutes on here, and it raises an important question as well. What was behind his coming to Jesus? What, what was it exactly that drove him to go to him? Did he have genuine faith in Jesus, or was he simply desperate enough to try anything, as many of us might have been in his shoes? The answer to those questions mostly become clear and quickly. And in the process, we'll see Jesus' absolute authority over all creation and his, in his great act of mercy. And we'll also see varying stages of belief of the boy's father. As to the question of the nature of the belief that first brought the official to Jesus, Jesus cut straight to the chase with his question of the man. So he had just come to Jesus, please come, please heal my son. He's almost dead. I need someone. I need something. I need help. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's kind of curious, isn't it? That's a strange reply. Not, At least not what I would have imagined Jesus would have said. It's interesting on a number of levels, but among them is the fact that the man had to have believed on some level, right? Right? The the fact that he went to Jesus, there's a, a type of belief he must have had. If he didn't believe that Jesus at least maybe possibly could have healed his son, why would he have gone to him in the first place? He didn't go to the local grocer or the local farmer. He traveled, as we'll see in a bit, an entire day just to get to Jesus At the very least, he believed that Jesus might, he must have believed that Jesus might be able to heal his son in a way that others couldn't. But Jesus' question clearly indicates that somehow that type of belief was lacking. There's a couple of things going on in Jesus' words that aren't easy to see on the surface. I'm going to help you out with that. I think it'll help make this more clear. First, the you. So, you know, if you're in the South, it's y'all. If you're in the North, like us, or the Midwest, it's you guys. Uh, in, in English, you can be singular or plural. Uh, you, you probably have figured that out already, I imagine. 
And in, and so when it's translated you, it seems like Jesus is talking directly to the man, which he sort of is, but beyond the man as well. It's as if Jesus was speaking to him, but also through him and beyond him to all of Capernaum and, and indirectly to all of Israel. He, he was passing judgment on the state of the hearts of the children of Abraham and pointing out their unbelief. He'd just come from Samaria, the land of Israel's enemies, and those who for centuries had rejected God as God, where they did not need to see miracles to believe. But picture this grace as God's own people, the people of the covenants and the promises, the law and the prophets, the people who had been miraculously freed. If I know some of you are in the Discipleship Journal reading plan. And for those of you who are, we just read through the plagues in Egypt. For those who are fr- freed by the mighty hand of God, hearing the very words of God from the Son of God, seeing in front of them the exact imprint of the nature of God wasn't enough. They believed they needed to see signs and wonders in addition to the sign and the wonder. We're meant to hear in Jesus' statement a sigh. He was grieved at the unbelief of the man, which was a just a microcosm of the whole of the people to which he belonged. This mild rebuke, though, seems to have gone right over the official's head. Another sign that he believed in a sense of desperation rather than genuine trust as he simply pressed on. The official said to him, verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, it's as if he said, Okay, whatever, Jesus. Just come and heal my son if you're able. He is near death. I don't understand, and I don't really care what you just said. Please, just do your tricks and fix my boy. I, I, don't, even, I don't even care how you do it. Just fix my boy. Well, despite the man's superficial belief, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. John does this all over the place. It's so unceremonial. <laughs> the whole rest of this, it's, it's just like, if I'm writing this, which, you know, God didn't like arrange, but if I'm writing this, I'm telling stories. We're having parties. I'm recording all of this. People are flopping down in amazement and wonder and go, your son will live. It's just that. We're not told explicitly what motivated Jesus to do this even. We know that he had a special love for children. The rest of the Gospels tell us that he had a special love for children and especially for those who are vulnerable. We know that he came to seek and save the lost, to heal the blind and the crippled. We know that his signs... This kind of sign exactly validated his spectacular claims. How do you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins? I tell you, take up your mat and walk. We know all those things. Well, whatever among them was Jesus' highest motivation here, or maybe all of them at once, he mercifully promised to this desperate, deficiently believing father that his son would live. And at that, the man came to a different kind, another level of belief. He entered into a different stage of belief. Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. With, his, with Jesus' promise, the man went from desperate but skeptical belief that Jesus might be able to heal his son to what seems like true belief that he could and would. That's a fuller kind of belief. In some ways, it's a better kind of belief. 
But as verses 51 and 52 help us to see, it was still deficient. 51, as he was going down, a servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him, at what hour? When, when did that happen? When did he start getting better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. So we know he traveled a long ways to get to Jesus. It took him a day to get back. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour, the exact hour that Jesus promised it would be so. When he, when he said the simple words, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. The man might have believed he believed when he first came to Jesus. He almost certainly believed he believed after receiving Jesus' promise of healing. But it seems from this text, John's, John's trying to help us to see that it was he only truly believed when he learned that his son had been healed at the exact moment Jesus promised it would be so. He came in as an unbelieving believer and left as a genuine believer. As important as all of that is, more important still is the fact that the man's varying stages of belief, which we got to witness, were seen through the revelation that Jesus has ultimate authority over all creation. It was in Jesus' display of his authority over all creation that we get to see the different types of belief in this man. There are no recorded actions of Jesus doesn't say he did a thing. It doesn't even say that he prayed. He didn't wave, wave a wand or lift his hands up to the Father or fall to his knees. It, he didn't even go to the boy. He didn't even move. He simply spoke the words and it was so. Jesus has absolute authority from the Father. And I want you to listen to that. As we continue to move through John's gospel, listen for that. Watch for that. You'll see that over and over and over. Let me give you five quick applications. They're really quick. Be amazed. Number one, be amazed. John doesn't use a lot of words here. He doesn't describe it in a way that would naturally stir us. And so we need supernatural help, which God is eager to give. Be amazed. This Jesus is worth worshiping with all of your life. This is, this, this Jesus is better than whatever is competing with him for first place in your heart. Fight, in light of this passage, fight to treasure Jesus above all else. He is the greatest treasure. Fight to believe that and feel that and live in light of that. Second, surrender wholly, entirely. What sense does it make to attempt to withhold anything from the one who owns and controls all things? It's foolish. You're stupid if you do that. And so am I, and I am, and I do. But let this passage be a reminder and a charge, an admonition, a command. Surrender wholly. With God's help, root out the areas of your life that you are still futilely attempting to retain control over. You don't have control over them. You just have the illusion that you do. Give up the illusion. He is a better king of you than you are. He is the one true king. Third, in your trials, go to Jesus first, not as a last resort. Our initial impulse in every hardship should be to go to God, who alone has the power to rescue and restore. Whether he does so through police or doctors or medicine or counselors or miracles, 
He alone has the power to rescue and restore. To fully apply this passage of John's gospel is to see the absolutely unique authority of Jesus to help you in your times of trouble, to comfort you. Even if he does it through a friend, it is his gift to you. Fourth, trust that Jesus is entirely able to grant your requests. Trust that he is entirely able to grant your requests. Some of you have prayed and prayed and prayed, and you're not seeing what you're requesting. Trust that he is entirely able. Whatever reason he has chosen to withhold answering your question now or your prayer request now, it is not because he is unable to do so. There is no prayer request that you will ever bring before God that he will not hear and cannot answer. He hears you and he is able. Lastly, fifthly, when, when Jesus does as you ask in your prayer request, it is for your greatest good. And when he doesn't do what you asked in your prayer request, it also is for your greatest good. This is hard, but comforting beyond measure when the Spirit grants us true belief in this. Do not grow weary of taking your requests to God when it seems as if he isn't answering. Do you know, Grace Church, that there is another story of healing in the Gospels? It's in Mark 5. Do you know that story? Imagine this man praying and the son dying before Jesus got to him, said the word. Oh, that would be tragic, wouldn't it? That would be terrible. Well, there's another story in Mark 5 where Jesus didn't respond in time to a man's child, and then he raised her from the dead. Jesus' response to your prayer requests is perfect every time. Believe that, Grace Church. And all of that leads to the final point and the true source of genuine belief in Jesus. John tells us that God used Jesus' miraculous healing in such a way that the official himself believed and all his household. And yet, as we've seen several times already in John's gospel, and as we'll see over and over and over, signs and wonders and miracles don't always lead to genuine belief. And I want to tell you something that I, I imagine will rattle you a little bit. Consider reading through the gospels with this, with this lens. Hear this, Grace. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we'll see that they rarely do. That's a big deal. That is, most of the people who witness the miracles and the signs and wonders of Jesus don't believe in Jesus. That's kind of crazy and definitely different than what most people imagine. Even witnessing an actual miracle is not enough to break up our hard, sinful hearts that are dead in our trespasses and sins. It also means that something else is needed, something more powerful than a miracle. And John's gospel speaks of what that is. This passage hints at it, and we get to see it unfolded more and more. This is a gift. How is it, then, that you move through the stages of belief to the one stage that connects us to the saving grace of God? As we've seen and will continue to see in John, even as we see and will continue to see in our lives There are varying kinds of believers believing varying kinds of things in various stages of belief when it comes to Jesus. 
And John tells story after story of the discouraging and ultimately impotent effects of all but one kind of belief. Let me urge you to consider this carefully. What kind of belief do you have? It is not a small question or a light question. What kind of belief do you have? What kind do your kids have? Parents, that's a big deal that we help our kids understand what kind of belief they have. What kind of belief do your neighbors have? Is it belief that Jesus might possibly be able to rescue you and save you? I don't know of any better options. Is it that he is able to save you, probably? Or is it actual belief in Jesus to save you? And again, where does that kind of belief come from? Our world is filled with people who believe in God but are sprinting towards hell. It was Jesus' mission, even as it is now our commission, to help people understand the true nature of saving belief and where it comes from. The one kind of belief that God has chosen to use as a conduit of saving grace is the kind that trusts wholly, entirely, in Jesus as the Christ, the King. It is the kind that believes there is a God, that we have all sinned and deserve death, and that Jesus died to pay the death that we deserve and that we gain access to that through faith. But it is also the kind that causes, produces. When we have that, it produces in the believer. It causes the believer to be cut to the heart by the realization that they have sinned against a holy God. It is the kind that causes the believer to taste and see, maybe even just a little bit at first, and then it grows, that God is greater than you could ever imagine. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It is the kind that causes the believer to increasingly grasp the amazing love and grace of God in Jesus. And it is the kind that causes the the believer to irresistibly fling himself or herself before God for mercy in certain knowledge that they will receive it through Jesus Christ. True belief goes beyond mere intellectual assent, which the demons have to the truths of God, to genuine trembling at the majesty of God, conviction of sin and hope bursting forth at the good news that comes to us in power of Jesus' rescue. That is the one kind of belief through which God saves and it is the kind which God alone can give. It comes only through Jesus entrusting himself to us. All of that, again, will become clearer and clearer throughout John's gospel. But but one such passage that has resonated in my heart for years is John 10, 24 through 28. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. In other words, I don't know. We sort of kind of want to believe, not really, but maybe sort of. If Just tell us. And Jesus answered them, I did. I I told you. And not only that, I showed you. But you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. They they prove that the things I've said to you are true that the claims I've made about myself are right. But you do not believe, and here's why, because you are not of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, 
and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I, I give them the belief that unites them with my saving work on the cross. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray now that Jesus would entrust himself to us into our family and to our friends and our neighbors and to the ends of the earth that we might truly trust in him.